Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, my name is Troy Halso, and I'm your host on New Books in the American South, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Keith B. Wood. He's a history teacher at Christian Brothers High School in Memphis, Tennessee. And today we're discussing his uh, new book, Memphis Hoop, Memphis Hoops, Race and Basketball in the Bluff City, 1968 to 1997, published by the University of Tennessee Press in 2021. Uh, Memphis Hoops tells the story of basketball in Tennessee's southwesternmost metropolis following the 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Keith Wood examines the city through the lens of the Memphis State University basketball team and its star player turned coach, Larry Finch. Finch, a Memphis native and the first highly recruited recruited black player um, signed by Memphis State, helped the team make the 1973 NCAA championship game in his senior year. In an era when colleges in the South began to integrate their basketball programs, the city of Memphis embraced its flagship university shift toward including black players. Wood interjects the forgotten narrative of Lamorne Owens' uh, 1975 NCAA Division III national championship team as a critical piece to understanding this era. Finch was drafted by the Lakers following the 73 championship, but instead signed with the American Basketball Association, Memphis Tams. After two years of playing professionally, Finch returned to the sidelines as a coach and would eventually become the head coach of the Memphis State Tigers. Wood definitely weaves together basketball and Memphis's fraught race relations during the post-civil rights era. While many Memphians view the 1973 Tigers championship run as representative of racial progress, Memphis continued to be deeply divided on other issues of race and civil rights. And while Finch was championed as a symbol of the healing power of basketball that helped counteract the city's turbulence, many black players and coaches would discover that even in its excuse me, that even its sports mirrored Memphis's racial divide. Today, as another native son of Memphis, Penny Hardaway has taken the reins in the University of Memphis' basketball program. Wood reflects on the question of progress in the city that saw King's assassination little more than 40 years ago. Uh, this book is an important examination of sports and civil rights history. Wood summons social memory from an all-too-recent past to present the untold and unfinished story of basketball in the Bluff City. Keith, thanks for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. Troy, I appreciate you having me on. I look forward to the conversation. 
<laughs> All right, let's do it. Um, so first, uh, first question, how did you come to write this book? All right. So uh, obviously I did my uh, doctoral studies at, at the University of, of Memphis. We were in the same cohort. Right. And um, one of the professors on, on staff, my a directing professor, Aaron Gutsuzian, had done a story, One City, which really studied uh, pretty much very similar dynamics. Um, did uh, the 1973 basketball team bring the city together? Um, and as we talked about uh, my dissertation, he said, you know, Keith, there are a lot of stumbling blocks uh, for me as an academic. And I had spent 20 years as a high school basketball coach in uh, Memphis City Schools and in Shelby County Schools here in Memphis, right? So many of these guys in the coaching fraternity that I would call brothers uh, were the participants in this narrative uh, 25, 30 years ago, right? So for me, when I picked up the phone and I talked to um, uh, Clarence Jones over at Tresden High School, I, I talked to Elsie Gordon at Melrose, or I talked to Clint Jackson at Lemoyne Owen. Uh, these are guys that I coached with and or against. And instead of saying I'm Dr. Wood from the University of Memphis, and they're going, who's that? When I picked up the phone and I said, hey, it's Coach Wood. I've got this project. Would you feel like sitting down? That opened up a lot of doors. And it really, not only did it open up doors, but it uh, presented a labor of love, right? So I had been out of uh, coaching high school basketball for about 10 to 15 years. And this allowed me to get back into the community and uh, to, to present a history uh, that needed to be told. Well, th thank you for that. I um, You kind of already beat me to the next question, uh, looking at those oral history interviews. Um, would you say that, 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 that those were these sources that made this story, that, that made the story possible? Right. So I think, you know, um, it was interesting uh, teaching at Christian Brothers High Schools, uh, two of the major characters in the story are, are obviously Larry Finch and another one was Keith Lee, who guided the Tigers to the 84 Final Four. Um, I had their grandsons in class, right? So uh, here we are two generations away. Um, Larry Finch the third um, didn't really know much about his grandfather. He, is, he was eight or nine years old when his grandfather passed. And um, Keith Lee's grandson was like, ah, my grandfather really doesn't talk about this. Uh, he keeps it kind of quiet. But they allowed me to connect uh, with family members. Uh, Troy, I had a three-hour conversation in my classroom with Vicki Stevens Finch, and she is the, the sweetest, kindest person. And man, she when she opened up, uh, first thing she said, wow, you really have studied Larry? Because I didn't even know that about Larry, and I was married to him a couple of times. Um, but you know, for me, uh, on the way out, when she was done, this incredible conversation, she said, Keith, do me a favor. Um, Larry never said anything bad uh, about Memphis State. Please don't say anything bad about my Larry. And I, I made her that promise, right? And if you read the book, um, if there are any areas where I'm analyzing what's going on, uh, I, Finch is not at fault. The way the community judges Finch, right? The way the university treated Finch. Uh, I, I go in pretty hard on that a couple of times, right? But Larry Finch himself um, was an upright man, who made the university proud and to be able to connect um, uh, Vicky and Larry's son, Larry Jr. Um, he's, I, I remember he played at the university of Memphis when his dad was fired. He was on, on the team and I was coaching high school basketball at uh, Sheffield high school in the city at the time. I remember him as a player 
And we got to be really good friends. In fact, he would, what do you need, coach? I can connect you with my mom. Uh, I can connect you here. What do you need? And, and he became uh, a conduit to connect with the community. Um, I can't even thank Larry Jr. Uh, for that. So these conversations, Clint Jackson um, over at LeMoyne Owen, uh, he actually was the head basketball coach at Sheffield, two guys in front of me. So not only were we able to talk about LeMoyne Owen, but we got to reconnect. What was it like to coach at Sheffield High School? And, you know, when you teach or coach at eight in a community, the, the culture remains the same, right? Dynamics change a little bit from class to class. But, you know, those conversations made uh, this book, you know, just a joy. You know, it wasn't it wasn't work, right? I, I was doing something that I loved. And, um, you know, I got to go to Piccadilly and eat lunch with Verdi Sales, the godfather of basketball. To this day, if any coaches in public basketball have questions, right, they go to see Verdi. Right. That that's the voice. And wow, what an incredible I, I can't even the, the day I interviewed him, uh, we go to Piccadilly and Whitehaven. We're sitting down and about a block or two from Graceland and everybody's coming up to say hi. When we're done, he goes, Keith, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. And I was like, no, 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 coach. Thank you. And he goes, no, today was my birthday. You gave me the greatest birthday present. I was like, coach sales. We could have done this any other day. He said, no. This city needs to hear this story. This country needs to hear this story, right? And for you to take the time to do this, thank you. And to be honest, of all the reviews, I love the podcast, uh, the reviews that are out there. Um, but when Verdi Sales emailed me and said, I've been trying to say this for years, you hit the nail on the head. For me, that was five stars. And, uh, you know, it was worth everything that I've done so far. You know, it's interesting kind of talking about, I mean, just what you said, that those interviews were kind of, they, they are the foundation for this this project. And, and what, what I've come to realize is that it, if this story, if, if you wrote the story without doing these interviews, it would be a history about what happened on the basketball court only. And I feel like that, the story was really more about the waters all these people were swimming in and the stuff that actually happened on the court were almost secondary to talking about Larry Finch. We'll go into a little more details, right? You know, I never thought you were, you were critical of him. You were just going, these are the cards he was dealt and here's how he had to navigate. Right. Um, and, and I think that was one of the, it actually reminded me a lot of Roger Biles that one article he wrote on um, church, right. Is that it was critical but not like it was a criticism, right? And so um, it, it definitely felt that way. They go, no, here's 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 the cards he's dealt. You know, here's the box he has to operate in, and here's what he's able to accomplish, and here's what he's not able to accomplish. And I think that's what I think that was the story, not the stuff that actually happened on the basketball court. Right. I think when you when you put it into perspective, um, what does Martin Luther King's assassination on April fourth, nineteen sixty eight, mean for the city of Memphis? Right. That's key. Right. And it is, it's actually guides my work. And, and as a historian, because I'm, I'm not from Memphis, I didn't grow up here. My family's not from here. And so as I moved down here, many of my friends back home are like, well, what's it like? Why did King get assassinated in Memphis? Why Memphis? Right. And as you dig deeper into these narratives, you start to understand why Finch had to be who he was. 
he changed the way that white Memphis viewed blackness in the city, right? Here is a respectable young man who comes from one of the blackest neighborhoods in Memphis, Orange Mound, and chooses Memphis State, right? Uh, over many in the, in the community saying, no, don't go there. And then he leads the program to the upper echelons. And then he comes back as an assistant coach, leads him back to the final four. Um, after the, the issues with Dana Kirk, he then takes over and he runs the cleanest program in the country, right? Graduates kids, uh, gets them to the next level. Uh, although he never wins the, the national championship that he so longs for, he does it the right way, right? And this is what endears him to the city. And he ends up producing, you know, today's head coach, Penny Hardaway, is one of his recruits, one of his top recruits, right? And he does it the right way, right? And uh, Penny sat his freshman year. He just quietly keeps it down. And, and he allows Penny to go through the Proposition 48. Well, on the other side of the country at Georgetown, John Thompson is really the Malcolm X. He, he is up in your face. He's forward. I'm not going to coach again until you take those kids but because Larry Finch grew up in a segregated Memphis, he said, no, we're going to quietly do what we need to do. And when you're ready, we're going to do this the right way. And we don't need to ruffle feathers, right? But we're going to gain respect as a man and respectability by doing it this way. And when you look at Penny Hardaway, I can't help but see Larry Finch every day when I'm watching him, whether they're doing article about practice, whether they're talking about the way he recruits, whether they talk about his X's and O's, whether they talk about his desire to win a national championship. Um, Larry Finch echoes in every one of those conversations. And that's the impact that Larry Finch had on this community. And I'm hoping that this book for the younger kids, that they know Penny Hardaway, that this will allow them to not only know Penny, but why Penny is who he is because of Larry. You know, it's it's just as you're talking about uh, Penny Hardaway, you know, that's who I grew up with as a little kid in Memphis watching Memphis basketball. It was it was Anthony Hardaway. And and then also through his time, at least through the Orlando Magic, I know he, he had injuries and stuff following that and he kind of bounced around. But like, I don't know, has nothing to do with the book. You just like all I could think of. There's two things that you're talking I could think of is one going to the pyramid as a little kid and watching the Penny play, right? The Tigers play. But then also, didn't Larry Finch, wasn't he also the spokesman for, what was that, uh, Memphis, the, the the blue, white, and gray ice cream? Was that, was that oh, Larry Blue Finch? Bell. Blue, blue Bell. Was that, was that, was Finch, yeah. was he the spokes, spokesman right. for and that one? And Penny did King Cotton hot dogs, yeah. right? So the thing about Larry. It just bring it back all these childhood oh. memories. Well, here's the deal, right? So I'm the same age as Penny. So when I was coaching as a young uh, 20, 25-year-old in Memphis, all my players were like, Penny's it. And, and I sort of would scoff as a New York kid, right? Um, but as I you know, got into this project, one of the things that Larry Jr. said was my dad could drive through any neighborhood in the city. He, he knew where every community center was. He knew where every high school was. And when he walked in the building, everybody knew who he was, right? And so this starts to change the way that I, I started to see and view Larry, like he had a much bigger impact, right? So he would go to church and, and Larry Jr. would be like, my dad never went to the same church every Sunday because he wanted everybody in the community to know that he was a man of God. And it wasn't just his church. He was going to go to multiple church and worship with you. He was a part of the community. He was Memphis. And 
he had this way, whether it was a white church or a black church, to feel at home in this entire community and to transcend those racial boundaries in this city that is uh, has issues of racial undercurrents that are still pretty strong today uh, is an amazing narrative in and of itself. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's actually start getting into the book itself. So, okay, uh, let's do it. Like I said, like I said before, we'll just kind of work through work through chapters here. Um, and so, could, can you, let's start off by can you talk about uh, the Memphis Interscholastic Athletic Association city championship there in the late '60s and kind of what role did that tournament uh, play? All right, so in basketball, yeah, you're good. Let, let's go back a little bit. Let's let's give it some historical perspective, right? So, um, for our friends that aren't as con, uh, familiar with Memphis, uh, everybody knows that in 1966, Texas Southwestern and Kentucky played at the University of Maryland, where Don Haskins starts five uh, African American players against Kentucky's Rupp's Runs. Right now, when he does that, that very same night at Vanderbilt uh, Memorial Coliseum, Treadwell High School, all white Treadwell gets pounded by Pearl, all-black Pearl High School in Nashville. And so um, the coach, uh, Bill McLean, comes back to Memphis, and he's like, look, that's it. You know, because in Memphis, Treadwell would play other white schools, Frazier, East, right? But they wouldn't cross the racial divide to play Hamilton on Melrose, right? And so he's like, that's it. We're getting pounded. I don't care whether we play black guys. I don't care whether we play white guys, right? We've got to play somebody so that when we go to Nashville, we have a chance to win. And let's let's give Bill McLean credit. As a white man in Memphis, starting in 1966, over the next year, he got together with black coaches at Melrose, Hamilton, uh, BTW, and he said, what is it going to take for us to get together and play? And that's where the MIAA is birthed. Right. So then in 67, 68, the first year, the the city integrates and they play sports, football, basketball, baseball across the board. No issues. Right. And so you're going home and away. And they divided the divisions uh, red and blue. So you wouldn't have by neighborhoods because those were all racially segregated. So you would have a white league and a black league. So they had to cross over. Incredible story. Right. And the first MIAA championship game is taking place right as the sanitation worker strike is happening. There's a snowstorm and there's, there's not a lot of people. And so uh, L.C. Gordon and Carver win over uh, Coach Clayton's uh, Frazier Rams, right? But then the next year, that's the story. The next year is Larry Finch. And he brings his all-black Melrose team to the Mid-South Coliseum. And they play all-white, the Overton Rebels. Same moniker as Ole Miss. Johnny Newman. Johnny Newman's averaging 40 a game. Adolph Rupp has said Johnny Newman is the next coming of Pistol Pete Maravich. In fact, Rupp said at this point in his career, Newman is better than Pistol Pete. I want you to think about that now. That's high praise from the Colonel, right? And so this game has so much attention at the Mid-South Coliseum. It sells out absolutely positively. There's not a ticket, right? Paul Feinbaum, right? You know, the guy that sports talks so SEC, he can't get in as an 18-year-old kid. He's outside. There's three radio stations calling the game. This is huge, right? And in this game, uh, Larry Finch's uh, Melrose Golden Wildcats just destroy uh, Johnny Newman. He actually breaks his hand. Newman breaks his hand 
on Ronnie Robinson's knee brace and keeps playing and ends up with like 34 points with a broken hand, right? But this is a preview of what Larry Finch is going to do for Memphis, right? So Johnny Newman ends up going to Ole Miss, all right? Larry Finch decides to stay home, right? So as we're going to sort of segue here, right? So what basketball could be, right? Because the Mid-South Coliseum sits on what we call the Beltline in Memphis. If you go south of the Beltline, you're in Orange Mound. You go north of it, you're in East Memphis. If you're in Orange Mound, you're in Black Memphis. If you're in East Memphis, you're in White Memphis. And here sits the Mid-South Coliseum smack dab in the middle, right? And so here's this social space where both communities can gather around basketball, right? And so the 69 game foreshadows what Finch is going to do with the Tigers. So they both go their separate ways. Newman goes to Ole Miss, right? Finch goes to uh, Memphis State. When they play as freshmen, the freshman game outsells the varsity game. People stay and watch Finch and Newman and go home when the varsity team is playing for both schools, right? So it just shows you what the impact Finch has. Now, remember, um, when Finch picks Memphis State, uh, Coach Collins over at Melrose has been jaded by Memphis. Dean Ellers, a couple years earlier, uh, in 65, I believe, was going to sign Bingo Smith, great shooting guard out of Melrose. Everything was set to go, and so Bingo's going there. In August of 65, Dean Ellers pulls a scholarship. Melrose, the community is jaded. There's not going to be another young black star from Orange Mound going to Memphis State ever as far as Coach Collins is concerned, right? Now, here comes Larry Finch, and he sits down and he decides, my mom, Maple, I, I want to play in front of her. I'm the oldest of, and I think it's either seven or eight. I, I want to be home so my mom can play. And so Coach Collins is like, no, you're not going there, son. If you sign with Memphis State, I'm not going to the signing. So he turns to Verdi Sales who's an assistant in Melrose at the time. He said, coach, what do I do? And coach sales goes, son, what's going to be best for your family? And coach sales courage to stand up because when he did that, right, even as a black coach, as an assistant in orange mound, the community called him an uncle Tom, a sellout. How could you do that? Yet this allows Larry Finch to sign. And in fact, Collins never comes to the signing leaves Melrose right? And goes over to Messick the next year, right? So there's this huge split in the community. Yet Larry says, no, this is what's going to happen for my community. And he brings with him Ronnie Robinson, right? And he brings with him, this is key, Vicki Stevens, right? Is his girlfriend from Melrose. And Vicki was like, no, I'm, I'm going to go to LA with my sister. And Larry goes, no, Vicki, you and I, we're, we're going to, to Memphis State. And she goes, okay, think about this. This changes the whole perspective. One, he brings his best friend from high school, right? So now he's got a buddy to whatever he's going to face at pretty much predominantly a PWI, a predominantly white institution. He's got his partner in crime, his buddy from uh, Melrose with him. Then, right, he's got his girlfriend. So for those folks in Memphis that are worried whether this young African-American basketball player, this athlete is going to date white women, they don't have to worry about it because he's got his girlfriend from Melrose, right? So this makes this transition incredibly smooth. And in 1968, or excuse me, 69, when he signs, that's huge, right? Because if you don't, the, the racial dynamics 
you know, when Martin Luther King gets shot in April 68, this city is on a powder keg. And for all of those things to line up and allow Finch to go to Memphis State really tells you about the courage that Larry Finch had to make that decision and the courage of Verdi Sales to support him in that decision, right? So that's that's huge in getting us to understand who Finch is. Yeah. Well, so so, so let's fast forward a bit. So, so, so Finch goes to Memphis. Um, and let's kind of talk about that 1973 run. Now, in, in the, the next chapter of your book, you know, you, you do talk a lot about Finch, uh, but you also talk about this 1973 myth, myth about what that run does. Can you a little bit talk about that myth a little bit? And and to an extent, too, just as a secondary question, the role that like sports journalism played in it, which which I could talk all day is good and bad about sports journalism. But right. like, can you talk about we, that? We, myth the and what podcast, the right? Yeah. So um, let, let's start here. So first, um, remember, we're, we're talking about a time in the NCAA when you only it's a one bid league. The Valley uh, is a one bid league. And so Louisville has been very strong um, during their junior year, uh, 71, 72. They get defeated at Freedom Hall. And, but the city travels up to Louisville, supporting the Tigers, right? And while we're there, uh, there's a reporter for the press seminar. His name is George Lapidus, all right? And so uh, a young Jewish reporter working for the much more progressive press seminar. For our friends that aren't from Memphis, there's two newspapers. The old standby conservative newspaper, that's the voice of Boss Crump for years, is the Commercial Appeal. And uh, the voice of uh, Meeman is the press seminar, which pushes back against Crump, pushes back against these racial issues. So Lapidus is friends with Wyeth Chandler, and he's developing a burgeoning relationship with the Memphis uh, State stars, uh, Larry Finch, Ronnie Robinson, and Special K, Larry Keenan, who's just come onto campus as a junior, right? And so what he does is following the loss at Louisville, their junior year, he puts together this narrative, right? And then... He's friends with Wyeth Chandler. Wyeth Chandler picks up this narrative. But the interesting part about this is that at that time, in 72, we're walking towards the the busing issue in Memphis. And what's really interesting is there's one one game where the Tigers are playing. They're up in Nashville. And Wyeth Chandler is a huge fan of how basketball brings the city together. Well, now... Let's go back to Memphis, right? In Memphis at that same time, um, we're talking about busing. All right, we've got plan Z, right? And so there was plan A and then plan B, and they threw that out the window. So we're going right to Z, and we're going to bus. We're going to do it in January, right? So all these kids are going to start school, and then for six months, and and then we're going to flip and take the white kids and send them to black neighborhoods, send the black kids, send them to white neighborhoods. And so it gets so crazy in Memphis that there's this group, Citizens Against Busing, that they bury a school bus. They get shovels, dig a, dig a grave deep enough for a school bus, and bury it, right? Now, let's put Chandler back in the mix. So Chandler one day is talking about this city is brought together, love what Finch and Robinson are doing, great things. He goes back, comes back to Memphis, and he goes to Westwood, and he goes, we're not going to let those children attend our white schools. Let's think about what just happened here. 24 hours ago, he was propping up the black athletes at Memphis State for how they bring this city together. 24 hours later, he's back in home, in the home district, 
and he's selling that we're not going to have this desegregation. We're going to have white schools and black schools, right? So this is happening that same year. So as Finch and the Tigers are making their run and winning the Valley, right? Chandler goes back and forth between the basketball narrative, bringing the city together and doing everything he can to keep the white and black kids in separate schools. Like what that, so, so the myth is that basketball cured everything, right? Now let's be honest for those three hours on Saturday afternoon at the mid South Coliseum on the belt line, orange mound, East Memphis, Memphis came together and we all cheered for the Tigers, right? We cheered for Larry Finch, uh, Ronnie Robinson, Larry Keenan, right? Uh, the one, um, uh, white player on the team, the starters, Laurie, uh, um, Bill Laurie, right? Who the practice facility is named after now, right? So, you know, there, there's this really interesting thing happening behind basketball, right? So uh, the sports journalism, you got to give credit for Lapidus. Like he puts this out there, right? And Chandler picks it up and runs with it. Now, Chandler's a, a man of the times. Like what, how is he, if he doesn't do this, does he get the votes to win re-election, right? You have to be, you have to be frank, right? He's a politician. He, he's got to get reelected. And in Memphis, what's going to sell, all right? What's going to get him back in office, right? And so there's really two storylines that are running parallel to each other. Um, and they meet every so often on Saturday afternoon at the Coliseum. But then after the game, they spread back apart again, right? So I think that's really, uh, really a really neat way and, you know, the farther the Tigers go, right? So this is the first time they get to the Final Four. This is the first time they're in the championship game, right? There as they, after the Elite Eight, uh, the, the airport at Memphis is standing room only, right? There's a huge group of Memphians, right? Wearing, holding signs to say Memphis, the UCLA on the east of the Mississippi, right? There's all this huge support. And in that way, yeah, the, the city really came together. So, I mean, it's a great story. Um, you know, for me, if I take a step back from the story, every time I, I meet somebody that, that reads the book, especially a Memphian, they, they'll stop me and say, I was at that airport. My family drove to St. Louis for the final four, right? I remember those games, right? And another image that, that sells this myth is that even though Bill Walton goes like 24 for 25 from the field, has a, like 46 points, NCAA record for field goal percentage. At the end of the game, he sprains his ankle. Who helps him off the court? Larry Finch, which for Memphis is like, there's our dude. And in fact, at the beginning of the game, which is the first NCAA championship game played on a Monday night in the history of the NCAA tournament as they mimic uh, Monday night football, the the, uh, announcers are very clear. This is a city that five years ago watched the assassination of Martin Luther King and Larry Finch has brought the city together. So even the national media has jumped on board Lapidus's uh, argument or story narrative that basketball has brought us together. And for those people that were there, it did exactly that, right? It really did do that. Um, just the reality is that not everybody in Memphis is going to be a basketball fan or even for that, a, a Memphis state basketball fan, right? And so uh, it, interesting story going back and forth there. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so the, the, the 73 run um, 
And then, like you said, uh, or I think you mentioned the book. Well, I know you mentioned the book. Uh, uh, Finch gets drafted, but he instead of going for the NBA, he goes to the ABA, the American Basketball Association. So can you talk about the American Basketball Association kind of generally, but then um, kind of talk about it locally there in Memphis because he goes on to play for the Memphis Tams. And that's just an interesting story in general. But uh, just kind of talk about that experience, that relationship of the ABA in Memphis. Right. So Memphis has always been a minor league city. It sees itself as a minor league city. It, it, it tries, it, it's tried to get into the SEC and collegiate sports for years. Um, right now, the big talk in town is with some teams bolting from the Big 12 into the SEC. Is there now room for Memphis in the Big 12? Right. So this desire to be uh, have an ABA team. Right. So um, there's an ABA team in New Orleans that's suffering financially. P.L. Blake, who's from Mississippi, makes a deal, brings a team up to Memphis. They're going to play at the Mid-South Coliseum. It's, it's a state-of-the-art facility. It's packed out for Tiger Games. This is a basketball city. It makes sense, right? But P.L. Blake comes in and he does the same things that Henry Loeb was doing as mayor of Memphis. He's lowballing workers, right? The uniforms, he doesn't even buy new uniforms. The, the team in New Orleans was called uh, the Bucks. And so the most uningenious name in sports history is the pros. The Memphis ABA team was called the pros. And so because he did that because he took off B-U-C-K-S and could replace P-R-O-S and only have to replace three letters and save himself money. Right? <laughs> so nobody's going to these games. Right. Um, we've got Babe McCarthy. Right. The uh, Mag- Magnolia Mouth of the South. Right. Great guy. Huge root wins at Mississippi State. The game had changed against Loyola in Chicago. Right. He's there. Nobody's coming to watch. Right. 250, maybe 500 fans at the Mid-South Coliseum when it holds 12 to 15,000. Right. So it just doesn't go over. The question is, why not? And here's the deal. What you have is African-American stars and 10 of the 12 players on the roster for the, for the pros are black. They've got Afros. They're wearing gold chains during the game. Uh, they're throwing black power, right? And they've got contracts. So they're making money. They're not doing this for good old state. You not for good old Memphis state. So even though that's there, it's not making money. So Blake gets out. And then in this really weird thing, it's the only time I've ever seen this, like the, the city, the ABA sells stock in the pros and the city buys it, keeping the team in Memphis long enough for Charles Finley, our friend from the Kansas City Athletics, the Oakland A's, right? Um, there was a, a World Hockey League team and he comes in and changes everything. Now he starts throwing money into this, but we're all going to have to be this really green and gold. Oh, we look like the Oakland Athletics. It's it's really weird. The name of the franchise becomes Tams, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi. Like, what is that? Where, where did this come from? And he gets jaded because the ABA is so crazy, right? Um, there's a draft in 73, and he's like, good, I'm going to sign Larry Keenan, who, with that 73 Memphis Tiger team, no disrespect to Larry Finch or Ronnie Robinson, he's the best athlete on the team. Without Keenan the Tigers don't make that run, right? So everybody pushes in on Larry, and they should. He's a local kid, but Keenan's the best player, right? And Finley's like, I'm getting him. 
Well, the ABA, in order to stay afloat, disallows the regional draft where Finley gets Keenan and allows the New York Nets to take Larry Keenan to put him with Dr. J. So you're going to have Special K and Dr. J because you're going to make money. And Finley's like, oh, what are you talking about? And he leaves. He just point blanks leaves in the middle of the season, like gone, right? And so now uh, let's, let's get to Finch. How does Finch get here, right? So how does Finch come back? Uh, originally, we said he was drafted by the Lakers, and he is, but he's sitting behind Jerry West and Pat Riley, right? So those two names aren't going anywhere. And so he says, I'm coming home. And they pick him up. And, and the coach is this guy by the name of Von Bredikoff, who is a screamer. Well, Larry Finch at Memphis plays for Gene Bartow. Very low-key, calm dude. Larry gets along great, thrives. With a guy like Van Bredikoff in his face, who has NBA experience, NBA championships, high-caliber coach, but he's in your face. It just doesn't work. Um, Larry ends up being a bench player. Nobody's coming to watch Finch at the bench. Um, he has one night where he drops like 26, and here's how, here's why. Like, in, in essence, there's a football game, a world football game, where the Memphis Southernmen, Southmen, are playing at the Liberty Bowl right next door. Anybody at the football game got a free ticket to the basketball game. And so the place is packed. So Larry gets into the game and just goes nuts, like a throwback to the 73 team, right? Great game. That's it. It's an anomaly. That's it. That's the highlight of his career. And um, then, um, so, oh, I'm trying to think. Um, who's the guy that played Shaq? I'm going to, this is going to blow my mind. I can't, it's, it's slip my tongue right there. But um, Isaac, um, Isaac Hayes. So Isaac Hayes comes in and he is going to buy the ABA team. But instead of writing a check, he brings the money to Mike Storen, right? Who's uh, given up his job as commissioner of the ABA to save the Memphis franchise in a brown paper bag. <laughs> and so this is really odd, right? Like, so now the ABA team is holding on. Shaft is trying to save the team, which would have made Memphis the first professional team to have a black owner. But Storm's like, the dude gave me the money in a, a bound, brown bag. Um, I don't know if that's legit. And he backs away. So the team ends up moving to Baltimore. Uh, it, it doesn't even make the next season. And so Memphis has lost its chance. And so the question is, why was the Coliseum full for Larry, Ronnie, and, and um, Larry, all right, and for the Tigers? But when those guys are in the ABA, not so much, right? Which shows you um, maybe it really wasn't basketball, all right? Uh, maybe it was good old state U. And, and I think that's a chapter that allows you to take a step back from is basketball really healing? Because if it was just basketball, right, then we would have supported the ABA as much as we supported, you know, the Tigers in 73. And I, I think that shows how much the city's grown because we support the Grizzlies much more today, right? A lot more like we did like Larry Finch and the 73 Tigers. And so I think that shows racially how far the city of Memphis has come, right? I think that's a positive. So we'll move on from the ABA and we'll go to my favorite chapter in the entire book, talking about Lamont Owen College's uh, D3 National Championship. And so I don't have a good question for it, but can you just tell me or tell the uh, 
listeners here about that national championship run at Lamono and College. Um, but of course, we have to talk about LOC um, and, and just some of the backstory as to really why I had no idea about it until you wrote it in your book, even though <laughs> they're national champions. Right. So even for many Memphians growing up in the city, uh, you've got Memphis State. It's the flagship school in the city uh, on the other side of the railroad tracks. Right in South Memphis sits small Lemoyne College. Right, Lemoyne College was opened um, as a Freedman Bureau College immediately after the Civil War. Right, and so it's it's a pillar of the community in Black Memphis. Right, and so in the 1970s it merges with local Owen College and becomes Lemoyne Owen. Right, and so um, they've got a really interesting story. Right, so the coach is is legendary. He coaches for over 40 years. At Lemoyne, he's actually a, uh, a disciple of John McClendon, all right, one of the preeminent coaches in all of HBCU, right, who took Tennessee State and uh, took them to the NAIA tournament and wins numerous national champions when the NCAA is not allowing black schools to play in the NCAA tournament, right? And so Johnson's a descendant of that, right? And, and he comes to Memphis. McClendon actually uh, suggests the job for him at Lemoyne. And, and Lemoyne plays, uh, let me see, I make sure I get this right. Uh, I, I always forget the name of the, oh, the VSAC, uh, the Volunteer State Athletic College, which is an all white college, right? So in the early 70s, Lemoyne Owen takes the step out and joins a conference where they're the only black school in the conference, right? You've got CBC, Christian Brothers, Bethel, Carson Newman, you're traveling state, some of these small schools in rural Tennessee, and you're the only all-black school, right? So this is interesting uh, thing. And in fact, Al McGuire from Marquette is one of the folks that helped convince uh, Jerry Johnson to join the VSAC, right? And so interesting side story there. So why does an NAI school, right, like Lemoyne, play in the 1975 Division III National Championship for the NCAA? Well, what you have in the 70s is the NCAA is working towards its present monopoly in college athletics. I think our listeners will understand that, right? And so uh, originally there was Division I schools, and the way for the NCAA to keep uh, black schools from playing in the Division I championship was to place NCAA or NCAA uh, HBCUs in Division II, right? So that way your premier schools or your PWIs and your HBCUs would be Division II. Well, Lemoyne Owen is a very small HBCU. And the NCAA is like, we're not getting these small schools. We've got to do something different. And so they, they create, in 1975, a Division Three. And so Lemoyne is playing in the NAIA. And for years, they're getting demolished by Kentucky State. It's got 20,000 students. Kentucky State is the HBCU in Kentucky, predominantly uh, the predominant HBCU in the, in the state, right? So Jerry Johnson makes a decision to jump over, to leave the NAIA, right? And then jump in the middle of the season and play in this Division Three tournament. And they make a run all the way to the championship game, right? They're playing uh, up in Pennsylvania at an all-white college, right? They're the only black school, right? And But for them, they're used to this. Right. They, they're in the VSAC. They, they played games in small southern towns where the racial animus was real. And, and in the chapter, I discuss uh, at least one time where the Klan chased them out of town. Right. So you're just trying to play college basketball. But the Klan 
is running you out of town. So they're not intimidated by this. But what's interesting is that if you look at the year at 75, that's two years after Larry Finch's run to the Final Four and the loss to UCLA. White Memphis has no clue this happens. The commercial appeal gives it minimal coverage, right? Uh, they don't even send anybody up to Pennsylvania for the Final Four, right? So whereas the entire city is at the airport welcoming in the Tigers, Memphis doesn't even know that Lemoyne Owens winning this, right? So Chandler gives the keys of the city to Coach Johnson and to Clint Jackson and to uh, Robert Newman, who are both Memphis kids from Hamilton High School, right, that are playing at Lemoyne, but nobody knows, right? So this is a great story of a small HBCU on the other side of the tracks that's hidden by the veil of segregation. Now, as a young coach, I'd have guys talking about this. Oh, yeah, did you know Johnny? Did you know Robert? You know Clint? Man, Willie Parr. You know, he had a cup of water with the Sonics. It was coached by um, Bill Russell, right? So these guys are legit. They won the national championship. They didn't even take a plane. Like, because they're a small school, they took a train and then buses from there, right? Where the Tigers are flying first class, right? So what was it like for Larry and Ronnie at Memphis, right? They get all the fame, the accolades, but they're surrounded pretty much at a white school, whereas at Lemoyne Owen, Clint and Robert and Willie, uh, those guys are an HBCU and they, they feel at home, right? And 20 years earlier, Ronnie, uh, Larry Finch, Larry Keenan, they wouldn't have been in Memphis. They'd have played at Lemoyne Owen, right? And so this shows you this shift that's taking on inside of college athletics. But how does that hurt the HBCU when its best players, the most talented black players, are no longer going to HBCUs, but now they're going to PWIs? That's a story within a story that I think is interesting that I think this chapter brings out. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it, it was hands down my favorite one, like you said, because, or like I said, because like, you know, white Memphis, I'm a white guy from the suburbs of Memphis, right? Like, like, like this is never a story we knew. You know, this was never a story we heard. Um, and, and given seg- how segregated Memphis was back then and, and even is now, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, I knew about Larry Finch, but I knew about Larry Finch because they'd always talk about Larry Finch in relation to Anthony Hardaway and stuff like that. Um, but, but this was just one of the most fascinating stories for me because national championship basketball team in Memphis – and at least half the city has no idea about it. You know, it's if just, you would it's ask my story. kids at Christian Brothers High School, mm-hmm. guys are going to graduate in 2020s. It before I open this conversation, they're like, "What's Lemoyne Owen?" Right? They have no clue, and um, you'd be surprised. Yeah, many of the African American students, um, I'd say about half of those guys don't know. Right? So um, unless you're an inner city kid that's growing up in South Memphis or your parents graduated from Lemoyne Owen. It's a story you don't hear. Right. So I think that was interesting. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to, uh, with, um, to Verdi sales. So, so who was he, uh, and okay. why was he so important to basketball in Memphis? Right. So to reiterate, remember, uh, in 1969, he's the one that gives Larry Finch the backing. I'm going to be there when you sign with Memphis state. I believe in you. Um, 
And so then um, when Collins leaves Melrose, Verde Sales needs to be the head coach. And he becomes the first high school basketball coach in the city to go undefeated. He wins the state championship game by 40. He's got John Gunn and Alvin Wright, and, and they are unreal, right? And so his success at Melrose uh, rockets him into a position um, when Wayne Yates becomes the head coach uh, in 1976, and he brings John Gunn. Now, literally, let's be honest, right? Wayne Yates knows he needs John Gunn because John Gunn's the number two big man in the country behind Moses Malone, right? So we all know who Moses is in his great career. John Gunn's tit for tat with him, and he's a Melrose kid, right? And so he gets John Gunn, but Verdi Sales goes, Yates, you're not going to get Gunn and me unless you bring Alvin Wright. And Yates is like, Wright's too little, he's not good enough. And Sales goes, no, I've coached this kid. And to this day, Alvin Wright is in the top three in assist and steals at Memphis State. He rewrites the record books. And see, this tells us who McVerty Sales is. It's a guy that he would have given up being the first black assistant coach if Yates says, no, I'm not taking Wright. And Memphis would have lost Gunn, Wright, and Sales. But his courage to say, no, you need both of these young men allows that to happen. And this is where Finch gets his quiet demeanor. Right. And, and don't miss this. Verdi Sales played at LeMoyne Owen years before for coach Jerry Johnson. So the coaching tree is actually Jerry Johnson, Verdi Sales, Larry Finch, Penny Hardaway. Right. And, and that's important to remember um, because that puts Penny in a very elite group of coaches in the city of Memphis. And now you could take Penny and go Penny, Larry, Gene Bartow, John Wooden and have the same tree. But the tree also divides up very prominently within the black community as well. Right. So sales is breaking down boundaries. And in the chapters entitled, um, he becomes the Moses. Right. And, and not the Joshua. He doesn't get to finish the journey. But Larry Finch does. Larry Finch becomes the first black head coach. And in fact, when Ye- when Yates is fired in 79, Sales is one of the three candidates. It's it's Verdi Sales, it's Larry Brown from the Carolina coaching tree, right? And Dana Kirk. Now, Verdi Sales is getting the obligatory. We've got to at least interview the one black dude, but he doesn't have a, a chance in hell of getting the job. And then uh, Larry Brown is like, yeah, I'll take the job if I get to pick my assistants and the AD, Spook Murphy, uh, good Southern name, Spook, uh, is like, nope, if you don't hire Larry Finch as an assistant, you can't get the job. So Larry turns the job down. And then Dana Kirk, who's this Huckleberry from West Virginia, who happened to work for Danny Crum at Louisville, gets the job. So sales is that connector, right? He's the connector from Jerry Johnson to Larry Finch. He's the common force. He's the godfather of basketball. Like all of the guys that I coached with in the city, we have questions. We go see the Godfather. He's the man. And we all know that. And we all believe that he should have been the first black head coach. But then he takes it with a grain of salt. When his protege, Larry Finch, gets a job, he breaks down tape with Larry Finch. Like he's got his own team at Shelby State. But Larry Finch is going to the, the house. They'll stay up for hours. And do it's it's like his son, right? And 
this is part of the Memphis fabric, right? And so sales is this great connector and he's someone that's often forgotten in this story. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it, maybe it's because he never became the first, you know, black head coach or just the second or third or whatever head coach for Memphis, right? That, he, that he's not a household name, but he, but he, he, when I read that chapter, I, I can't point to a good example, but you kind of look at for whatever reason, you know, these career assistant coaches that like the reason that like, your Calipari's and whomever are them is because of these assistant coaches that they have on their staff. And that was a sense I kind of got from him. Um, I, I don't think he went into that much detail, but like what, what did his career at Shelby state? And, and what, what? Oh, he's one of the most, uh, and because the book focused around Finch, I, I just sort of alluded to it. He becomes one of the most well-respected uh, junior college coaches in the country. Um, well over a thousand wins, and this is going undefeated in Melrose, right? So not including his high school wins, right? The the four the four years he spends in Memphis State with Wayne Yates, he has incredible success. Um, he's in the Tennessee State Hall of Fame uh, for athletics, and so he he's just an incredibly high figure. Um, the basketball coach at uh, Memphis, uh, excuse me, at Christian Brothers, is Bubba Luckett, and. When he was, uh, Bubba Luggett was a senior in 78, 79, and it was Verdi Sales who recruited him to go to Memphis, right? And so uh, even Bubba speaks highly. Um, Bubba's one of the three guys with an undefeated team, and, and, and Luckett will tell you in a, in a heartbeat that Melrose team in 75 would have beat the brakes out of his 2022 team that was undefeated just only two years ago. He said, no way. He said that team with gun and right would have wiped us away, right? So... But sales has that kind of respect. Nobody even it, – it's not a question. Everybody just knows it's coach sales. And uh, it's just an incredible thing. I, and so uh, I had to include him. And like I said, when he said, this was my birthday, thanks for the birthday present, I was floored, right? What an honor to share his story. Yeah, right, that's awesome. Um, so you mentioned Dana Kirk, so let's talk Dana Kirk. So Dana Kirk gets hired as the head coach over sales. Brown says no because of, because of the Finch issue. Um Talk about Kirk's tenure, um, and then kind of more specifically, uh, and this is actually interesting, the kind of way you did it, just how did, how did Turk's tenure fit within, like, the Memphis political climate of the 80s? <laughs> this is deep now, Troy. We're getting into some good stuff. The corruption in city government, right? So we're moving into the late 70s, and actually we're just going to jump into the early 80s, right? So... Um, uh, Harold Ford Sr. Uh, is that. And so you've got the, the Ford machine uh, in town and you've got um, Mayor Harrington, is this, who will become Mayor Harrington, is the, the superintendent, right? And so uh, there's rising polit- politics going in. And as Black Memphis gets a, a, a stronger hold in the politics of the city, um, doing the same political tricks that many white Memphians had done for years under Crump, now they're, um, you know, uh, criminals, right? So it's, it's this really interesting white Memphis is trying to hold on to control of the city, the school district, the city council, the, the mayor's office, and, um, you know, the corruption, it, it goes hand in hand, right? Um, Dana Kirk is, a, is an incredible X's and O's. Like everybody I talked to uh, about Dana said that if you got into a huddle with 30 seconds, there wasn't anybody you wanted in the country Besides Dana. Now he had this like Huckleberry, West Virginia, good old country boy feel, which fits in Memphis. Troy, you grew up here, right? Um, Memphis is country cosmopolitan, right? 
Uh, it's it's country, uh, but it's ghetto at the same time. So this this countryside of Dana um, fits right. So, but here's the one thing about Dana: he's willing to do anything to win. And Keith Lee got a lot of money to decommit uh, from Arkansas State to cross the river to go to Memphis, right? Um, and this it sort of plays itself out. Um, it's, it's really low key, right? Um, so I didn't put this in the book. I'll give this to your listeners out there. Um, from what I heard in my, uh, research, he had one car in Memphis and then he had a Corvette over in West Memphis where he was from. So he never brought the Corvette into town. So it looked like he was like too boisterous. Um, but he got a shoebox of money every month from boosters and so there, they, all these underhand things. Now, Keith Lee goes on. He's on like the All-American cover with Michael Jordan, right? He's putting Memphis on the map. So the dude can play, right? One of the best big men in the history of the Memphis program. But Dana's putting money in his pocket. And this isn't NIL money. This is way before any of that. And uh, and he gets gets caught, right? He's caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Otis uh, Sanford, right, who uh, you might know as a scholar in Memphis, wrote um, From Boss Crump to King Willie, um, just breaks open this huge story. And it gets exposed in the, as this is coming forward. Um, now the NAACP and Maxine Smith is like, okay, what's the graduation rate at Memphis? Well, the graduation rate is uh, two players in 20 years have graduated that were basketball players. And you want to guess what race the two players were that graduated? They were white. So not a single black player graduated on time. So what is this? Is this bonafide? you know, slavery, right? You're using these kids to put the university up here. And when they're done, kicking them to the curb, you know, um, Vincent Askew's story comes up, right? There's a, a lot of stories uh, that are there uh, under those Dana Kirk years. But don't forget that what Dana does is he brings in Larry Finch as an assistant. That was one of the keys for him getting the job and he does it. And Larry just goes about and does his job quietly, recruits Memphis kids, and everything that I went, I went deep. Larry has he has no clue this is going on, right? Um, and, and there are moments that um, you know Larry's called to. Uh, there, there's a discrepancy between Kirk and Lee at practice. Uh, Lee played like a bum against Virginia Tech and, and just blows up while they're watching game tape. And Kirk sends all the other players up top, and he says, "Larry, uh, Coach Finch, you need to handle Keith," and leaves. And so Larry Finch becomes the black coach that can handle the black kid. Right. Um, But he is just keeps doing what he's doing, bringing Memphis kids in. And and that's the connection. Right. So when Dana Kirk gets fired, it's in August, September. The terms already started. Right. It it took uh, it's 86. Right. And Memphis doesn't have anywhere to go. All the big names are off the table. So that's how Larry gets the job, right? Um, he's just in the right place when Dana Kirk goes down. And uh, there's no really other choice, right? Larry's the, the hero. Um, and so he ends up getting the job in 86. Um, here's a big question, though. When he gets the job, how much money does he get? Is Larry Finch going to be paid comparable to other white coaches at major division one schools, or is he going to get less money because he's African-American and, and there's some, there's some tension in the city over that. Right. And so um, you can call him the, the greatest player, the hero of 1973, but he's not an 18 year old kid anymore. He's a grown man with a family. He needs to be paid appropriately. Right. And accordingly. So there, there's some of that going on as well. But what we, what I will say about Dana Kirk is as, as uh, many issues 
uh, problematic. And if you want to call him dirty, you can. Um, Larry Finch is squeaky clean. He's the exact antithesis of Dana Kirk when he becomes the first black head coach at uh, at Memphis. So, so, so Finch is, you know, he gets hired. Um, so, and we can kind of wrap up last chapter here and, 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 and whatnot, but let's just talk about Finch's tenure, right? Like, what is he, what is he as a coach? And I remember you kind of let off uh, at the beginning, or I can't remember this, if we were already recording or before we recorded talking about, you know, how you ran the program, quote unquote, correctly, right? Squeaky clean, graduated players, He's winning games, right? right? When the Dana Kirk thing hits the stand, the NCAA takes all the money back from the final four run in 84. They take the banner down from 84. You know, the NCAA, what the NCAA always does, right? So um, Carolina and Kentucky can do, and Kansas can do pretty much whatever they want, but we're going to make an example of little Memphis, right? So this is what Larry Finch inherits. So what he does, he just takes those kids and he wins the league. He defeats Louisville. Now he can't go to the tournament because he's on probation, but he defeats Louisville. And so now, you know, this is Memphis bringing him back and he signs Memphis kids. He signs Penny Hardaway. Um, he's signing said Henderson. He's signing Elliot Perry. He's signing all these Memphis kids and he's put a fence around the city and he's winning games, but he never gets back like uh, Penny's junior year. They were, they should have gone to the final four, but David Vaughn's knee blows out against Arkansas at the pyramid. Well, here's another thing I bring up in the book under Finch. They moved from the mid South Coliseum. They closed the Coliseum and they moved downtown to the pyramid. Well, the pyramid is a failure. It's down on the river. It's beautiful. It's a great facility. You remember it as a kid, right? And it's it just, it's not, economically it's not in a great spot it's no longer on the belt line bringing black and white memphis together and espn has just started showing a ton of college basketball games so memphians aren't going down to the river they're not going to the games the university's losing money and when the university loses money the businesses downtown are losing money and so all of this gets thrown on larry his 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 record speaks for itself he's like 78 to 80 percent win record um, but he then takes the fall. Like he has to fall on the sword because the pyramid fails, right? And, you know, uh, he, he couldn't predict that David Nee's Vaughn blows out or that uh, Lorenzen Wright, when he's here as an NBA lottery pick, you know, um, they get upset in a uh, Sweet 16 game that they should have won, right? And, you know, there's those things that Larry has no control over and he's doing a great job, but watch this. Here's what, they, here's what they're going to attack him on. Oh, Great recruiter, not very good with X's and O's. And that's just the prototypical, hey, he's black, so obviously he's not as good with X's and O's. And, you know, if you take that further, what really saddens me is Larry didn't get another chance, right? He didn't get another power five. Now, maybe that's because he's a Memphis guy and the only place he really wanted to coach was Memphis. But why do our white coaches at PWIs get time and time and time again? They keep getting recycled. How many times has Larry Brown resurfaced? Right. He was at Memphis not that long ago last season. Exactly. <laughs> right. So yeah. you know, it's, it's, these are things that are interesting. Like these are the questions. And and here, let's let's be honest with this. You never heard when Larry Finch got fired. He didn't say a bad word. He said thank you for the opportunity. He never said anything negative. He wasn't derogatory. He didn't talk about the administration. He said Memphis has been great to me. This is my home. You want to talk about? a man of respectability. That's Larry Finch, right? He epitomizes everything 
that the university and whatever the university does to him, it's okay. And and his wife, his widow, will tell you this. That's what brought him to his grave. His his sickness, his health dipped because when they took that job, they took the essence of who he was, right? And a guy that's winning 78% of his games and he just hasn't won a national championship, do you know how hard it is to win a national championship? And we're not a power five, right? Um, so there's some great stories in there. Um, unfortunately, you know, as many games as he wins, you know, puts banners up there, he just doesn't get the 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 NCAA tournament advances. And so they go in a different direction, which is is sad. And uh, until John Calipari comes back, right, in the late 90s, early 2000s, Memphis sort of falls into oblivion again, right? Um, so that, that that's really where the story is. Uh, there's a lot more to it. You know, I, I get a little deeper in the book, but I, I think uh, – does that answer the question? No, it, does, it does, it does, yeah. And, and it was one of those things that, like – it was it was fun reading this because you know you're telling a history of you know my really my childhood right because with with uh, Finch's tenure as, as the Tigers head coach and, and with Anthony Hardaway and stuff like that and and I had forgotten right that like how quickly his health actually declined after he lost you know I, no I wasn't really keeping up with Larry Finch and, and all that kind of stuff I get that but like you know, how quickly, uh, you know, he had that stroke and then 10 years later, he, you know, he died, um, just from all the complications of, and, and that makes sense that like, if, if his kind of his life force was extinguished, you know, when he got fired as head coach, you know, it's kind of, well, no point in being here anymore. You know what I mean? And you know I, I can easily see, take that away from him and then kind of, uh, well, off I go. Yeah. You know, um, if you look at the obituaries, like in, in the commercial appeal, when Larry Finch passes away, there is a 12 page section in the newspaper for Larry Finch. 12 pages. It's its own section, which speaks to how, how crucial and critical of a character he is to the city and to our narrative. Right. Um, when Dana Kirk passed away uh, a year or two before that, um, there was one section in the sports section that was small. There were three articles. Right. Here's a guy that took us to the final four. He gets three articles. Here's Larry Finch, 12 pages, right? So um, it's uh, really interesting to see that. And I, I think that just speaks volumes to how much, um, you know, you're going to know him because of that. But, our, you know, your parents' generation are going to be so connected uh, to that. And, you know, if, if we can, if this book draws those generations together and people get, you know, I love watching Penny on TV when he cries after losing, He's crying for Larry Finch because that's his coach. Penny doesn't need this money. Penny's got NBA money. He's got all-star NBA money. He's got little Penny money. He still had new shoes come out this year. Penny does not need this job. So why does Penny do the job? Penny does the job because of Larry Finch, and he's going to win a national before it's done. And, and it's, it, I, I really – my heart breaks when I read the newspaper – and the the echoes, history echoes so loudly uh, because every time they want to get after Penny, oh, he's, he's not very good with X's and O's. And I said, man, that is the same line you guys used with the other hero of this city. Penny's the hero of your generation, Troy. Finch is the generation of an old you know, hero of the, the previous generation. And that same storyline, like we haven't got past that yet, uh, that this young guy I'm watching what he does defensively as a guy that coached high school basketball for 20 years. I'm like, the stuff that he's doing is unreal, right? So it's unfair, um, but it, it does 
let us see that some of these undercurrents are still with us. Now, and, and it's one of those things when, when Penny got hired, I, um, I was just ready to say, all right, let's, let's see how this goes. You know what I mean? And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, going to Memphis and being from Memphis and, and, and all that, you know, I'm, I'm always rooting for Memphis and I keep up and, you know, and living up here in Montana, I don't have an opportunity to watch very, very little University of Memphis or even Grizzlies basketball for that matter. But, you know, I watched that opening round loss to Florida, was it uh, Florida Atlantic? Florida Atlantic, yeah. Yeah, Florida Atlantic. And and I'm sitting there, you know, I was like, in hindsight, I was like, well, I mean, they went to steep. Florida Atlantic went to the sweet, you know, Elite Eight, so I'm not going to be mad about that loss. But, like, you know, if it was a gut punch. I'm watching that, and I was just angry and upset for the rest of the night. And I'm sitting there going, I'm like, wait a minute. I do, why do I care this much? This is ridiculous. Did, did you see right after the game? Like, so – you're going back and forth, right? It's, I mean, like the last few seconds, right? And when the horn sounded and Memphis didn't get that shot off, did you see Penny? He took a water bottle and threw it the length of the bench. Right? And I said, that's it. That's how much of a competitor he is. He, now as a coach, and I know this, you can only put kids into positions they have to make plays. and But it doesn't mean you're any less competitive. And I saw the competitor in him come out. I thought that was awesome. And I'm thinking uh, Coach Finch probably would have told him to calm down a little bit. <laughs> it's like you can't right? throw that water bottle, Andrew. <laughs> right. So, but uh, it, it, that's the passion. And that's the passion. That's the story of Larry Finch, right? The passion for the University of Memphis, for Memphis State basketball. And, uh, you know, I hope I hope your listeners, right, have, have found something that's interesting and they want to take a little deeper dive and uh, can jump in, get a copy, uh, either on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can do that that way. And I've got a website, uh, Keith B. Wood Author. Uh, they can check that out, KeithBWoodAuthor.com um, or Facebook, right? I've got a Keith B. Wood Author Facebook page. Um, so you can do that and then, uh, you know, pick up a copy, you know, see what it's like. Because I think it's not just a Memphis story, right? It's a story of civil rights in the South through basketball, right? And so I, I think that's for me. Uh, why I think it resonates not just here in Memphis locally, but it has national appeal as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can imagine, too, that this a version of the story plays out in other kind of uh, basketball-centric yeah. cities around the nation, you know. Indiana, uh, Kentucky, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Some of the issues that, you know, we're facing the same issues. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're a civil rights, you know, if you come to the Civil Rights Museum, you're coming to Memphis, Tennessee, you're going to the Lorraine, right? And you're at, at the the center, the cauldron uh, in 1968 of when people, some people say, you know, the classic civil rights movement ended in 68 with King's assassination in Memphis. Right. So why is that? Right. And this book, I think, explains why Memphis, you know, why that happened here. Right. And it talks about the how it reverberated uh, all the way through Finch's career. Right. Um, I think what's really neat is my next project um, predates the Finch story. It goes back to the Negro League Baseball where um, uh, the Memphis had its own team, the Memphis Red Sox. And from 1922 until 1960, uh, Memphis is one of the preeminent Negro League baseball teams in the country. And baseball was it, not basketball. In the black community, it was baseball, right? And uh, it is, that, to me, um, is another story that sits behind the other side of the tracks. And nobody knows that we had a major league team and when the commissioner Manfred only a couple of years ago said that the Negro American League was a part of the major leagues, well, that means Memphis was Major League Baseball, 
right? So that same way that we've always longed for professional basketball, we actually had professional baseball and our stadium, our team uh, was, we had a really nice stadium. I mean, the stadium that the Red Sox played in was nicer than Russwood that burned down, right? Um, it had apartments, right? It was built out of concrete. That joker, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't blow that thing over with a tornado if you wanted to, right? But, uh, you know, it's just another great story in Memphis. I think if you can share those stories, um, people get an understand, better understanding of what it's like down here. Well, cool. Well, Keith, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. I just say, say thank you. Um, I really enjoyed this discussion, and I encourage anyone out there who's interested in the history of basketball, Memphis, civil rights, et cetera, uh, go pick up his book. And, um, yeah, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it. Appreciate it, Troy. Thank you.